0: Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com slash B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com slash B-E.
1: There are always kids who, who, you know, that connection of helping them see how brilliant they are, uh, see their leadership potential, see their, you know, take that energy and help them find their passion, you know, helps to make school better. It helps to make uh, students learn more, and um, and I believe that it helps to make our society better.
0: Dr. Chris Jones here, and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices, so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thoughtful dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. Henry J. Turner is an award-winning high school principal, author, and nationally renowned speaker. He's most proud of the collaborative community he works within to empower students to fight hate and bigotry in their school. Pointing to his unwavering commitment to equity and a student-centered culture, Henry was named 2020 K-12 Principal of the Year by K-12 Dive. Henry's the author of the newly released book, Change the Narrative, How to Foster an Anti-Racist Culture in Your School, published by DBC, Inc. As a national speaker, he shares his experience as an innovative instructional leader, passionate advocate, and committed anti-racist educator with educators and organizational leaders. Henry works with educators, leaders, and communities on how to create a culture that commits to diversity, Equity and inclusion empowers students' voices and addresses economic and racial disparities. He has a biweekly newsletter, lessons on social justice leadership that can be found at HenryJTurner.com. I'm I'm really over the moon about talking to Henry today because um, his bio doesn't do him justice with all of his anti-bigotry, anti-hate, anti-racist push that he does. So much so. That just as a disclaimer, I'm having Henry come to my school uh, at the beginning of the year to work with my faculty. So that that right there should tell listeners what I what I think of Henry. So, Henry, welcome to the program today. Chris, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you. This is this is going to be great. I get you, and also I get your newsletter. Keep up the great work on that. I love the newsletter. Um, Lots of good things in there, and I'm actually. Actually, today or tomorrow, my book should be arriving at my house, uh, so I can't wait to dig into that. But Exciting. Thanks. Look, from your bio, people can probably determine what your passion is, but could you just take a few minutes and, and let us know what your passion is when it comes to education?
1: Yeah, so I was one of those uh, rare people who knew what they wanted to do when they were in high school, uh, and I knew I wanted to be a history teacher and you know, i guess my my short part of that story is that um i grew up one of the few african american uh, students of color in my uh in my in my community uh, i was majority white vast majority white community um and i was a uh, part of a family that that talked a lot about race um and as we were a multiracial family I identify as, as african american and and uh, multiracial african american and white and um And so, you know, I was in this uh, world growing up where I was talking a lot about race and the rest of my peers uh, were not. Uh, And, you know, I was confronted with it a lot, you know, through racist comments or through uh, just sort of not feeling seen, even though I was, you know, a well-connected student in the school. And uh, I grew really interested in history, and I wanted to um, help make a difference for other students, um, other people, particularly people like me who were students of color in majority-white communities who wanted, who felt like they needed to be seen. And so, majored in history and education uh, in college, and then and, um, went straight into teaching uh, teaching history. And so. My passion is working with students. It's, it's really, uh, particularly students who don't feel connected in school. My passion is also for students who, you know, don't see their potential yet, uh, don't see, uh, their brilliance yet and to help them see, see that brilliance, see that potential and, um, you know, set, help them set a high bar for themselves. So that they can, um, you know, really be leaders as as adults and be uh, change makers uh, as adults. And so, uh, as an as an educator, now that uh, when I started was now uh, twenty years ago, over uh, over twenty years ago, I feel uh, that that passion, you know, just continues to uh, get me up every day and make me love this this work because there are always kids who who. Now, that connection of helping them see how brilliant they are uh see their leadership potential see their uh you know take that energy and help them find their passion um you know helps to make school better it helps to make uh, students learn more and um and I believe that it helps to make our society better and so that's what uh continues to drive me as an educator
0: that's that's a great answer and because what what I got from that answer just to make sure that i'm I'm on track is is your passion is helping other people basically realize theirs. Absolutely.
1: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I feel like, um, you know, I feel like my core is really about, uh, is about learner-centered, bringing learner-centered schools. Uh, and, you know, I intentionally talk about school, uh, with students talk about school being their school. And, um, and you know, my message to freshmen is, you know, what are you doing to make connections with people who are different from you? What are you doing to learn about yourself? My message to juniors and seniors is what's the legacy you're going to leave in your school, right? So it's about helping students to to explore new things and then eventually to leave their legacy and to, and to be the change makers um, as they get older. So, uh, you know, I fully believe that this is our students' school and that our job as adults is to help them see the potential to help them create the change um, for the community that they wanna see.
0: What a fantastic message for students to hear, especially today in in the culture that is unfortunately forming around our nation today and the different things that we see and the messaging that comes out from different peoples, which I I really liked that you're student-centered like that. And you recognize that the school is their school. I just had a talk and I'm going to give a shout out to our athletic director. He runs a captain's council or has a captain's council comprised of all our athletic team captains and throughout the summer. And then sporadically during the year, he runs leadership training. So they're not just winners of a popularity contest. They're actually getting training on how to be real leaders around the building. And I just spoke with them for probably about 10 minutes yesterday about that very fact, the idea that, yes, there is, whether we want to admit it or not, people look at them differently because of athletics. And so they need to parlay that into how they're looked at in the building as leaders and that they can push the culture. So I'm, I'm glad that you do that with students talking about legacy and, and purpose. I did have a follow-up, though, about when you were explaining how you came to your passion and how in your, in your family at home, you you talked about race so it was a conversation. And I think about, I think about families that quite possibly talk about race, but they might not talk it in the same, talk about it in the same way we're talking about it. How do we deal with something like that? Or is there any guidance we can give as school leaders? Yeah. So I, I, I think that, um, you know, as,
1: as schools are, you know, our first job is to, um, is to share our value system. Right. And, you know, we are the center of, a, of community. Uh, as public schools, and and so therefore our, uh, you know, our value statements should be inclusive and it should be focused on helping um, our students to to, uh, grow and to explore. And so therefore equity has to be at the core of our work, you know, regardless of uh, the community that you live in, is that there are, school is the place where students are going to interact with people who are different from them, you know, whether it's people who, uh, look different, think different, learn different, you know have different religious backgrounds um you know different um di- different uh, family backgrounds or 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 values and so um you know and and as as high school as high school people, you know high school is the last time when students are forced to be with people who are different from them, right They choose the college that they're gonna go to uh, or the career they're gonna go to or military. Um, after high school, then they choose the communities that they're going to live in. Um, and they have a lot more choice, which you know you know uh, forces people to to make um, choices of people who are similar you know similar to them, whether it's values or or it could be racial or it could be religious or or cultural. Um, so high school is one of the last places where we're for you're forced to be in with people who are different. and so I think our value systems need to be work need to work around that and and you know I think that families, Uh, Your question was specifically about race. I think that families who have pushed back against us to say, you know, we talk too much about race and we say, well, this is the value of our of our schools that we talk about difference. And our job is not to teach students what to think, but to teach students how to think. And in order to do that, they need to uh, learn how to not only be respectful to others who are different from them, but to learn from people who are different from them. Uh, and to be able to engage, and, and also to be able to stand up to be upstanders, right? Like we talk about bullying, and you know, in Massachusetts where we both are, um, you know, there was a huge push around uh, anti-bullying and, and building students to be upstanders, right? Um, and you know, my criticism to, to that that policy work was that it was very colorblind, and uh, it just sort of gave a blanket statement about bullying. But in the same way. Anti-racism is the same as anti-bullying, right? And we want students to stand up for people who have, uh, who are who are marginalized, and stand up for people who, you know, who have don't have the privilege for them. And that's where, you know, what uh, I've heard in the national media, I've heard, you know, in my community that I live in, is that uh, when we talk about privilege and advantage, that it is about making white students feel bad about themselves. And the reality. Is that this is the same as bullying? Anti-bullying work, right? We want students to stand up for people who don't have the same privileges. As them. So it's not about feeling bad; it's about feeling good about your identity, and recognizing that some people don't uh, can't walk the street the same way that you can, or can't don't have the same uh, don't can't say the same things that you can that you feel like you can freely say. And so that your job is to stand up for for those people, so that we can have an equal society, um, and you know, I think that like having a value, the importance of having a value system as a school and a school district is that when, um, you know, when people push back and say, well, um, you know, I disagree with that. Well, then now we can have a conversation, right, about why we disagree. When we don't have a value statement, um, you know, people think this is coming out of left air or, or left field, right? And so, um, you know, I think it's really critical for schools to have a value statement. I think it's really important because again, we're, We are, uh, you know, we are a place where we want to support students learning from people who are different from them. That that's a critical component of the value system. Uh, And we also want students to stand up for people who are different from them. So I think that also should be a part of your value system. And I think that when parents disagree or other community members disagree with that, we can have that conversation. But at least we know they know where we stand in terms of our values.
0: And in about the past five minutes, you just reassured everybody why you're here on this show and why I'm having you come to my school. That is in a nutshell, such a perfect explanation of why the work's important and why it needs to be paid attention to like other things have done. And personally me, I, I never looked at the anti-bullying legislation as colorblind so that, I mean, you explaining it to me like that, just, light bulbs were going off, I was like, oh, uh, yeah, we've in doing something to protect a certain group of people, we're completely still marginalizing other people. And if you don't say, at least in my belief, if you don't call out something for being wrong, well, then you're condoning it or actually even endorsing it as being right. So silence, silence is an issue. I, I also really liked, you know, you talked about the the idea of respect for being able to grow and learn, um, and being able to display that respect. So it's it's about making sure that students learn respect, and and you can you can have that conversation and have those lessons without even talking about um, race, religion, sexual identity, or anything like that. Um, and upstanders, and how important it is for upstanders. Now you you do you do speaking engagements, um, you do workshops. You you wrote a book on the idea of anti racist culture and building that type of culture. I really like the way that you approach the topic, but what led you, was there a point where you really turned to say, I need to get out and be really loud about this. I need to put resources out. I need to, I need to be much more active than I currently am being.
1: So, I mean, I heard two questions there. One is that like, why are we, you know, why did, you know, how did I get into this work? And part of that is like, we, it was, it, it we got led into it because of some issues that have happened that happened in our school. And so I was uh, prior to this job, I was principal of in um, you know, the smallest district in Massachusetts and we had dealt with some hate incidents there. And one of the things that we learned and um, you know, is that, um, you know, there's one significant event where a uh, swastika appeared in the school and we uh, decided to share that with the community uh, you know, at that point, we weren't aware of any students who had, had seen it, but we still thought it was important to share with the community. And, um, you know, a couple of things happened with that. One is that our Jewish community felt very supported by that. Um, you know, students were saying, we know that this is happening in this community and the fact that it's being acknowledged is important. And the second one is that we got a lot of pushback from other administrators, uh, you know, as this became news uh, in other parts of our state and around the country who were like, You know what we were taught was to to not share this information for fear for copycats, right? And I think that that was general training that a lot of administrators got was that you know graffiti you don't talk about you just push you know push it under the under the rug. And what we found is that marginalized community did not feel supported by that practice. And so when I came to this school, um, you know, my second week of school, our second week of school, my first year. Um, a group of students drove around waving the confederate flag and immediately uh, our students of color particularly our black students were were speaking to to me about our in our deans about not feeling supported in the school and 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 some students even saying that they didn't feel like the school loved them and as we dove deeper into the into the the data too is that you know at that point uh 41 of black students in our school were saying that they had a connection with an adult In the building which was 30 percent lower than white students um and so now that uh, incident again we it it became a national you know a student caught it on videotape it went in the went in the national papers and um you know we the way we responded was through partnering with our students they were empowered to uh you know we supported them in leading a rally and it helped us to really learn about when we empower our students, they feel connected to school and therefore they feel like they can create change in their school and they do better in school. All right. There's a clear connection between connectedness and student student achievement. And so that was, this is, I'm going to my seventh year. So that was, uh, you know, almost seven years ago. And, and we've seen a lot of success in our school. We haven't solved racism, something I'm very clear about. We have not solved racism, but we have um but we have made a lot of progress in terms of helping students of color feel connected empowered um in fact in our in our introduction, we talk about a story of a student who came back and you know just in the way in which um she felt empowered in college and was was um you know both socially emotionally and academically was leading um you know it was to, it was helping us to realize that. You know, we had we were doing some good work here. And so in 2020, you know, after the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others, is that um, educators were around the country were asking for help. You know, they were realizing that there was not just racial injustice uh, in law enforcement, but there was racial injustice in education. Educators were saying, what can I do? And you know, I I was getting asked at that point to be on podcasts and do some and to do some writing, and, and realize that um, you know, I could be helpful to share what 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 I have learned in, in this work, and you know, it is twenty plus years, um, of 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 passion and work as a teacher and then as an administrator, and then you know, some clear understanding of like you know, what are some of the pathways to help create change, and um, you know, I was really fortunate that. Um, the year prior, I had made, um, a connection with a person who became my co author, Kathy Lopes, um, who's a social worker. And, um, she, uh, trained as a social worker and, uh, eventually became the diversity, equity, inclusion director in our district. And after doing some writing, um, to start this book, you know, I was chatting with her or was chatting with a friend who said, uh, who had written a book prior uh Rao that just came up with another book and and she said to me I was just saying how long this is, this process is taking about writing you know I love writing but this is and as you know Chris it it, it is time consuming and she said have you ever had you ever thought of a co-author you know and that was the best advice that I could have gotten because not only did it help uh, you know in terms of uh, to, you know saving some time But it's just such a better book because my passion for change, for leadership, my experience as an administrator and her her passion, we have very similar backgrounds, but her passion for racial equity, her passion um, for the human side, that social worker counselor side of it, really just made this book not only just one where it was about leadership and change and creating a culture, but it was about you know, what are activities that you can do to help people, you know, to, to buy into this work? To, you know, what are ways that you can support people as they're struggling through this work, as they're resisting the, this work? And it's just such a more, it's, it's, much, it's a much more comprehensive book because of that partnership. And, and I think that, you know, the reason for now is that um, this has this now become friend center in our work in education, is that, um, you know, we have to, as educators, we, um, you know, I think we've always had to make that choice and you know, sometimes in reflection, the example like, you know, of not reporting graffiti, that sometimes, you know, we realize that we were part of the problem, you know? And I think that now at particularly as it's become more of a national topic that politicians and other societal leaders are or advocates, are advocating for us to not talk about race and racism. You know, we as educators, we have to make a decision. You know, are we gonna allow for that to occur? Or are we going to um, you know, stand by our values that our students should be, you know, learn about other, uh, other people? They should learn about our history. That's accurate. Um, and how do we make sure that those who are the most marginalized in our school um, and in our communities and our society, um, that we stand up for them? And so I think that was sort of, you know, why, um, as we were writing the book, why we thought it was really
0: critical to, to, to get it out. Um, You've just said so much. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for everything you just said, because I mean, you, you went down a road and you did a little bit of a deep dive on, you know, how the book came about and, and getting into this work, the idea of, you know, deciding, making that decision to be vocal and then reflecting on, am I being part of the problem? And sometimes that's hard to admit and get by because to move forward, I find that we have to actually admit that we were wrong to begin with. Um, and sometimes that's not easy to look in the mirror. Yeah, I, I mean, I just I think that is
1: as, as, as one of our challenges as educators is that we can be pl- we are we're placed in these positions of, of power. And because we're in this mission oriented work that we're serving students that we get that we forget that actually we can we can be we can be wrong. Right. And we can make right. mistakes. Right. Yeah. And that sometimes it's because of the outside pressure. It's, you know, the pressure from parents or like it's pressure from our colleagues that we we don't um, we don't reflect on sort of what can we do better. And, um, you know, really, the, you know, I think the path for us to address systemic racism is to recognize that we are part of that system. And, you know, we talk about the process of learn, reflect, act and assess um, as a process for you to be critical, self-critical of yourself as a leader. You know, what are the things that I can do better to address uh, systemic inequity? And then that's the culture that you can create, right, is to think about um, your culture of learning, reflecting on itself, taking some action and assessing
0: whether that action that action's working. Awesome. Now, you you had mentioned also that, especially with the book where you got quite more comprehensive and you did strategies and activities, I want to I want to come back to that because I think that's important when we talk about supporting, engaging, and empowering people to take part in this work. Um, but first, I just want to take a quick break, hear from some sponsors, and then we'll come back and talk about that. All right, everybody. And we're back with Henry. And You know, when, when we took our break, um, Henry, you had just taken a deep dive into the basically like the genesis of your book and the importance of it coming out as soon as it did with all of this type of work being at the forefront of a lot of conversation in education now. One of the things I want to go back to is you mentioned the idea of strategies and activities in this book, and that's what made it comprehensive. And for for anybody out there trying to engage in this work, it's it's difficult enough, right, Um, when you come to terms with it yourself. And then trying to lead others in it, um, the fact that you're starting is a great thing, but you can really get going if you have proven strategies and activities to use kind of at your, at, your, uh, at, at your fingertips. Could you talk about some of those things or, or some ways that leaders can engage and empower those they're leading to take off with this type of work?
1: Yeah, I think, so The one of the areas that we thought that where there was a hole, um, why we thought this book was important is that there's a lot of books out there that help uh, educators or, or individuals to kind of grow in their sense of anti-racism or... Um, to, to address social justice issues. Um, But there really isn't anything out there on um, leadership and how to be a leader and get other people on board. And so um, the first part of the book is, is around um, your work as an individual, because that's critical is that you have to do your self work. You have to do your individual work. But the second part of the book is about how to get others on board. So whether it is, um, you know, how to work, and to work in our different facets in education. So whether it's working with students um, or working uh, with on, on build, fostering collegiality or, or whether it's, um, uh, or if it's, you know, how you're uh, evaluating, um, you know, instruction, you know, and supporting uh, anti-racist uh, classrooms. So, you know, some of the things that we we talk about is one, thinking about, the diversity of your school right in terms of the roles so we have some in there some activities on um that we've done with uh coaches for example right so um on talking about how to you know what is their role in addressing uh hate incidents on the on the playing field court pool wherever and that's something that you know we're seeing an increase in um uh is that uh a lot of racist sexist homophobic uh comments and acts happening during games and uh knowing no one is uh responding to it right coaches are not players not officials are not and so how do we make sure that our coaches know that they can say you know we're not we're not participating until this is addressed you know like how do we how do they take action This again our core values uh, and your counselors, right? Like, we, we talk a lot about, like, how do we help teachers? Like, how do we help our counselors in terms of working with students, students of color? What does cultural responsiveness look like uh, for counselors? And so, you know, in terms of, so one is for thinking about the, you know, the range of roles uh, in your school, because once you get, like, your admin assistants and your counselors and your, you know, your, your BTs and your, your teaching assistants, on board in this work, you're really shifting culture because those are the people on the ground. Those are the people working with students, uh, you know, daily. And and so some of the activities I also think about is thinking about where people are. And so one of the best pieces of feedback that I got, I actually write about it in the book, is um, we have an affinity group for teachers of color um, at our school. And and so what we started to do was to, you know, I, I feel very strongly that, you know, we should be Teachers of color in majority white schools, um, you know, latch on to DEI work because they're really passionate about it. Many of them. And sometimes as administrators, we assume that they are going to help us with their DE, with the, our DEI work and it's additional work that they are doing. And so I think it's critical that we're finding ways to financially support them. So whether it's duty release or, um, or, 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 you know, stipends or whatnot. So for our uh, faculty of color, we, Um, give them some release time during the day uh, to meet. And so uh, they were at a retreat and I joined them. And one of the pieces of feedback that they got was that your, that our uh, racial identity development workshops were really geared towards white educators. They were not geared towards educators of color. They were really, really entry level type of workshops. And that was the criticism. And, um, you know, I, I walked out of that that meeting, I was driving home. I was like, you know, well, they should work, they should do this themselves. Like <laughs> yeah. they should come up with these workshops themselves, right? Like, uh, who are they to give me feedback? Yeah. No, <laughs> right. So uh and it's like, you know, light dawns on marble head that uh that's the answer, right? How do we empower teachers to you know run these workshops? And so um, and to to identify what they need. And so we've I would say, you know, some of the things that we've done is particularly now uh, as we're working around. Uh, UDL, for example, is like what are the different options that teachers, uh, educators can dive into in this work? Um, so whether they're just beginning, you know, uh, uh, their racial identity development, or they've had many years talking about it, so they keep feeling feeling challenged. And so, you know, we have an educator of color affinity group. We have a uh, we have a, a group of educators who also meet during um, uh, during our meeting time who are um, more diverse, white educators and educators of color, but who are just beginning uh, their racial identity. And, you know, they bring uh, more experts in the school to come and speak with them. They they talk about their journey. Um, they're sort of a support group for each other. So I'd say that that's like another structure to kind of think about.
0: I got it. That, that's a fantastic idea that I, I want to make sure I'm echoing back to the listeners to make sure that I have it right. So you have affinity groups, which is, I mean, everybody, I don't see anybody could ever disagree with the idea of affinity groups being a benefit, but then you talk about this other group that are just beginning with their racial identity, um, and how that's a mixed group. Do you have different groups based on where they are in their own personal DEI work that you work with? So, so
1: that group particularly was, uh, came out of, um, you know, the, the events of 2020 and, they were educators who wanted to, you know, and they initially wanted to, you know, they wanted to kind of focus on their own work. Uh, many of them, most of them were white educators. And I would say that, you know, I, uh, this is a pers- personal belief, I feel pretty strongly about it, is that white affinity groups uh, should not exist um, because it, uh, affinity groups really should be for those who are marginalized. And I've seen too often that when schools have created white affinity groups that it actually reinforces racism um, because people make racist comments and no one says anything or, you know, and so, but I do believe that people who are new to this work should have so a support network. And so that's really where we supported this, this group. And we have part of our meeting structures. It, we have, uh, you know, once a month, pretty flexible day where people can choose where they're where they're going to meet um, or what topic they're going to meet. And so this group meets during that time and it's mostly white educators, but there are many educators of color who participate as well, who feel like they're relatively new to the journey. And, you know, it really is about self-learning, supporting each other and, and growing. And then, you know, we have um, another position called the office of, you know, it's a DEI position for our, for our school. And that, you know, this, they invite that person to come in and speak, and, you know, it's sort of a it's a it's a support support network in that way.
0: That's good. And and you you uh, jumped ahead of me. I was going to ask you, I'm so glad you mentioned white affinity groups because people say, well, you know, then we should have white affinity groups. It reminds me of a question I got from a school committee member where we're in a, a women in literature course, um, just focusing on women writers, women authors. And when I put this up in front of school committee to get it approved as a new course in the program of studies, um, the person raised their hand and, and asked me, they said, well, do you have a men in literature course? And, you know, it was, I, I didn't answer this, but I was thinking this, yeah, it's called the last 200 years of curriculum. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up that it, the affinity groups are really for those individuals who are marginalized so that they have, it's almost like the window mirror theory where they can see themselves. But they can also see where they can go from there and discuss that uh, with each other. Yeah, I, th- I think affinity groups are
1: really meant, and, th- and particularly for for students, affinity groups are places for you know a marginalized group to to recharge. Whether it's your um, GSA or it is um, you know your Black Student Union, it's an opportunity for students to recharge. Now, uh, that doesn't mean um, that that uh, people who are not a part of that group are not welcome, and I, I think that's a part of the culture. Like for me. You know my belief, and it's it's certainly been a part of our school culture well before I was here, is that our our clubs and organizations are student clubs, and so adults are not dictating who is a part of the club or who's not part of the club, right? Like if you want to do mock trial, the students are the ones who are really deciding who's going to be in you know mock mock trial so um, the same thing for uh, you know our equivalent of our black student union is that um You'll walk in there and you'll see students of all races, but there are students who want to support Black students, right? And they want to talk about issues that that are relevant to Black students. So you have white students in there. So so it's it is not one that stu- some students are barred, and it's certainly not one where adults are, are are making those decisions. You know, I I know that that may be different in other communities in terms of a culture, but that's certainly our culture where you know our student organizations are student organizations, and I think it just falls in line with you know my value system of uh, of student
0: empowerment. Perfect. So, you, you know, you're saying so much, but we're uh, we're getting to the end of the podcast. So I, I do have two questions for you that I ask every person that comes on the podcast. The first one is, if you were not an educator, who, not what would you be? So
1: I, when I think about this question, uh, there's a lot of places where I could go. But uh, I think I'm going to go uh, down the fun route of this and say that uh, I've always, along my journey, have had a passion to be a uh, rock star. Even though I can't sing, can't carry a tune. Come on, uh, a rock star! Absolutely, seriously, absolutely. Awesome. And so, um, and so when, in fact, the funny story is that uh, when I get behind a microphone for any you know, graduation or anything. You know, I want to, like, just, like, belt out uh, behind the microphone. So I would have never guessed that. Yes. I would say uh, it's very deep inside of me. Very deep. (laughs) Very deep. So I would say the person that I would, who I would like to be is, I would say, uh, hip-hop brilliant
0: artist, Q-tip. Really? That's awesome. That is awesome. So now every time I see you speak, you know, I'm going to be thinking that when you grab that microphone. Yes. Man, just let it rip, Henry.
1: <laughs> I'm very, I'm very, tra- very transparent in my school district to tell the people that that's that is what is that's what calms me down before I say, you know, welcome graduates. Is that I'm ready to kind of just, you know, uh, just let it get, rip. Everyone, get everyone rocking. Yeah.
0: Well, I I can't let that go without um, without saying, and this term gets thrown around a lot, but I I actually mean it. Um, without saying you already are a rock star. You're a rock star in educational leadership, but don't worry, I won't ask you to answer another one. (laughs) The the next one is, what's the most important piece of advice? I mean, we've covered a lot of stuff today that people can dig into and, and they'll probably go back and listen to to catch some stuff. What's the most important piece of advice you could give to leaders as they work to better support, engage and empower those they lead? So I think that, uh, you know, I work, with, I work
1: in a program for aspiring leaders, and I think the most critical step that we prepare them for is, uh, is entry, um, how to, how to um, you know, create an entry plan where you're learning, where you are listening, and um, that you are, you know, and you're your building relationships, and every entry plan that I have done, um, you know, the most valuable thing that I have gotten, and I've started my entry plan you know, right when I get, usually when I, right when I've gotten the job. And so it's in the spring before I'm even getting paid and I'm building relationships. And I have found it so valuable because opening day, when you're that school leader who doesn't know anyone, you have already done kind of this process where you've built some relationships and you're able to engage with people. And uh, we don't do this work in isolation in education. There's never a decision that I've ever made that hasn't been with other people. And so the relationships are so valuable. And so that entry is really important. And I would say the flip side, now that I have, uh, uh, it's been several years since I have transitioned jobs, but I've left uh, a couple of positions and exit is something that we don't talk a lot about. And you realize that people are grieving when you, when you leave. And so as a leader, your job is to, you know, I talked about with some other principals who have just transitioned, doing an exit process is just as vital as an entry process and how you support folks so that they feel like, you know, the transition is good. They're going to be supported during the transition and that it's going to be a smooth transition so that, um, you know, they're set up for success after you
0: leave. You know, I, this is why I said rockstar. What you just said was absolutely brilliant. Uh, entry plan, right. People will hit on that and they'll, and they'll say, yeah, you need to enter right and do all that and, and not come in with 18 goals that you're going to hit in the first three days. But the exit piece and the last place I exited a few years ago, um, well, growing years now, they kind of slipped by without me looking at my engine. Right. There were people that were legitimately upset that I was leaving. And it was kind of abrupt. And I remember the staff meeting that I announced it at, I looked over at my director of counseling and she said to me, she said, boy, I'm glad I'm not you right now. And, you know, me being me, I was like, okay, sure. And so I got up there thinking, you know, no big deal. And when I announced it, it was like, everything changed. I mean, there were everywhere from audible gasps. Uh, There were a couple of people that were happy, let's be honest. But, um, People came up to me after and people were teary eyed and I just never thought of it that way um, because I did no plan. I'd love to sit here and say, oh yeah, I prepped everything that me. No, I didn't. I, you know, I got up and announced and said I was leaving. I didn't even think about it. And I think to myself, what a missed opportunity to do something better or to help support people and better. So, so I'm, I'm just so glad you brought that up. Yeah, no, I, I I was in that same experience, which is why uh, I did some blog
1: some blogging about it as I left my last last position. And uh, you know, what's amazing is that the people who are you know are very critical of you while you're in the role; those are some of the people who are you know the most upset that when when you're leaving, you know. And and it speaks a lot about you as a leader that um, you know you built these relationships that people feel trusted that they can be honest with you, but you're, you know, as a leader, you're a really important, uh, position for them, a sense of, you know, a sense of consistency and that, and people feel safe there. So yeah, it was, it's, it is fascinating when you leave as a, as a, as a, as a principal, uh, uh, how people respond. So I think that that relationship piece is, is critical.
0: Awesome. Well, Henry, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and and spending the time you did with me today and, and with the listeners talking about, talking about yourself, you, you, you know, you were vulnerable and, and, in some of the stuff you talked about and given some great advice to people. So you're, um, look, you know, and to the listeners, you, you want to talk about a bold, innovative and student centered leader. You're talking Henry Turner. So I'm going to link your, your website, your newsletter and your book up in the show notes and everything. And I can't encourage people enough to, to check you out, follow you if they don't already and uh, go from there. But what's the best way or, um, people can reach out and contact you. So Twitter is uh, is somewhere where
1: I'm always on. So at Turner HJ is the easiest way to get in touch with me. And uh, and if you go to my website HenryJTurner.com, there's uh, ways to email me and and uh, and connect with me with me there. So perfect.
0: Well, again, thanks. Um, it was great talking to you today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, pal. Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step be sure to take action on something you heard here today. Thanks for listening to the scene to lead podcast. If you'd like to connect for any reason, Email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at drcsjones. Jones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show, leaving an honest rating and review, and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Learn more at drcsjones.blog, continue to improve, and go have a successful week. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, FlexTime enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com B-E.